God has only ever been good. Uh, this week has been a hard week for many, as uh, Hurricane Ivan has come through our state. Uh, a, a particular note on the West Coast, uh, in Sanibel and Fort Myers, several like-minded churches that I'm personally connected to that are uh, very similar, with similar values to ours and love the Lord, have just been in the middle of this catastrophe of this uh, hurricane. So if you would, as we now have a prayer petition before God, I'd just like to pray on behalf of some of our sister churches that are hurting right now. So would you bow your head with me and let's go before our God in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can gather in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, this means that we gather accepted and beloved in Christ, not because of our works, but because Christ has made us his own. We praise him. Father, before we pray for others, we just pray for our church. We pray that you would work in our church to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that we are often tempted to primarily desire external growth. But Father, we pray that you would give us a deeper desire to grow in Christ to grow in our knowledge and love of you, our service to you. Father, may our lives grow in holiness. May we, may we grow in a fear of the Lord. May we worship you, O oh God, with our lives. Father, we as a church now gather and we intercede on behalf of those who have been hurt by Hurricane Ivan this week. Father, we remember that every Every molecule of that hurricane, every force of wind in that hurricane is under your complete and perfect and sovereign control. You are the God whom the wind and the waves obey. So even when we don't understand, we trust you. We pray right now for Sanibel Community Church and for this church that's unable to meet and have no church building right now, Father, would you strengthen them and their congregation in this time of trial? Father, would you strengthen our church as we watch that we would be ready for future trials that would come our way? Father, we pray for their members who are still missing. Would you bring them safely back to their families and would you spare lives? Father, for Pastor Jeremy Rennie and the pastors at Sanibel Community, Father, would you provide homes for them as they are homeless today? Father, as all of their possessions fit into the back of a pickup truck, would you remind them that their treasure is not in the things of this world, but is in Christ? Father, would you give those pastors wisdom and strength as they care for their flock, as they themselves are hurting? Would you would you give their families peace during this trial? God, I'm, I'm reminded of your church in Jerusalem when persecution came and they were scattered and you used that scattering for your glory. And I pray right now for this church that has been scattered away from Sanibel Island into Fort Myers. God, would you use this sovereign change to bring more people to Christ? God, would you be glorified even through this tragedy 
And now, oh God, we pray that you would be with us now. God, give me the ability to explain and exhort from your word clearly. Father, through your spirit, give this congregation assembled the ability to listen to your word and to apply it to their lives. Give us more of Christ, we pray. In his name, amen. What is a common idol that people here in Palm Beach County face? That is, what is a, a value or a priority that people here in our area tend to worship instead of Christ? Think just for an example about this. Think of the culture of Washington, D.C. Last fall, my family and I lived on Capitol Hill for five months as I was in a pastoral internship. And we lived three blocks away from the Capitol building. And we were in the middle of D.C. culture. The church and the community we were in was filled with countless lawyers and lobbyists, aides in the White House, aides in Congress. And we were at the center of our nation's capital. The men and women around us were spending their days making significant decisions. And the culture we were in was one of power and influence. From a Christian standpoint, a, a common idol in that culture was the allure of influence and the allure of, of power. Influence can be a good thing, but it is a horrible God to worship. Consider another example. As you all know, for the last decade, my family and I has been living in the Middle East. Uh, we lived in the city of Cairo, and our city was home to the world's premier Islamic seminary. And we lived in one of the most conservative neighborhoods, one of the most devout Muslim neighborhoods in the entire city. Our neighbors prayed five times a day. They followed the strictest guidelines for dress and diet in Islam, and for even how to do things like just trimming your beard. I, I literally could not walk to the grocery store and have a conversation for five minutes without repeated references to God and his will for us. They, we were surrounded by a people that were just incredibly devout. And the common temptation there, the common idol in that culture, was the allure of devout self-righteousness. Again, devotion can be a good thing. But apart from the grace of Christ, it's deadly. So the lore of influence or the lore of devotion. What would you say is a common idol or temptation that we live amidst here in Palm Beach County? We should be careful not to label or typecast, but are there temptations that we especially need to guard against? Let me just suggest one for you in this introduction today for you to talk with your friends over lunch about and think about together. What if a common temptation of our culture is the allure of leisure? Now, we could talk about the temptations of comfort or of money, but, but right now, just think for me about the temptation to pursue an easy life, a convenient life, a life of leisure. Just think about 
the culture we live in here. We enjoy golf, we enjoy swimming pools and beaches and pickleball, which can all be great gifts to enjoy. We enjoy beautiful air-conditioned homes in idyllic communities, all blessings to have. People move to Florida to bask in the wonderful weather we have, most weeks at least. But in all of these good gifts, is there a risk that we begin to idolize leisure and ease? Is there a risk that we forget the nature of the life that we are called to as Christians? Our world tells us that comfort and ease and our amusement in life is only ever good. But for the Christian, a life pursuing ease is deadly. It's a lie to believe that you could coast your way to heaven. That is, that you could slip your spiritual transmission into neutral and just cruise downhill and still arrive safely in heaven. That's a lie. The driving point of today's passage of scripture today is that Christians actively pursue their coming salvation. Let me say that again. Christians actively pursue their coming salvation. Christians press on. Having already found Christ, we still pursue him. As a church, we're studying through the book of Philippians, a letter written from the Apostle Paul, a letter, letter written from prison, a letter written to a church that the Apostle Paul had labored hard, he had worked hard to help plant. Last week, Paul wanted to teach this church that they do nothing to earn Christ's righteousness. Their confidence should be in Christ alone, by faith alone. And then in today's passage, it seems like Paul might be afraid that some of us would think that because we do nothing to earn Christ's righteousness, we therefore do nothing. Friends, resting in Christ is altogether different from sitting in complacency. They're two different things. Keith has already encouraged you to open your Bibles. If you haven't, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians 3. I'm going to read the text, starting in verse 12 and continuing down to verse 1 of the next chapter, chapter 4. Paul writes this. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, 
walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If you're taking notes today, let me give one main idea and four brief subpoints. I'll move quickly through them. But here is the main idea, the main point I want you to first think on this morning. Christians actively pursue their coming salvation. Look at this, how this begins in verse 12. Paul had just been talking about our salvation in Christ and the hope of our coming resurrection in last week's passage. Then in this verse, he seems to need to clarify, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In case it had sounded like Paul had finished and all was done, he humbly reminds these listeners that he hasn't arrived in the Christian walk. He hasn't obtained all of the realities that he had just talked about. So just looking up, he knows Christ truly, but his knowledge isn't yet complete. He has the power of the resurrection, but he hasn't obtained it yet. He hasn't been resurrected yet. He is becoming like Christ in his death, verse 10, but he isn't fully like Christ. He isn't already perfect, verse 12. Paul is still in process. And so, Paul says, he presses on to make this coming salvation his own. His words, I press on, here are actually interesting words to choose. A few other times in the Bible, this is translated as strive or to pursue. But most every other time, these words are translated as to persecute. In fact, if you look back up at verse 6, when Paul wanted to talk about how zealous he was, he says he persecuted the church. It's the same word that he uses here. The idea is to pursue or to, to hunt down. It's like a, an earnest chase after something. Imagine a bloodhound chasing down a fox or a policeman chasing after a fugitive. Paul is saying that he is chasing after his coming salvation, even though he's already found in Christ. This is even clearer when he repeats himself down in verse 14. He says again, he presses on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This upward call, this heavenly call, is a final and future salvation. We are pressing on for that. In the Bible, uh, the Bible has no problem holding together two ideas closely. Number one, that your salvation is not in what you have done, but in what Christ did. And yet, at the same time, number two, your future salvation will be reached as you press on in Christ. 
John Murray writes, the true test of your faith is enduring to the end. And notice this pursuit is because Christ has already made us his own. We don't have our future salvation yet, but Christ does already have us. So, Christians here, are you pressing on? Are you pursuing your final salvation? Are you pursuing knowing more of Christ? Will your eternity in Christ look dramatically different than your knowledge of him here? Or are you pursuing that both will look the same? You are knowing Christ. Do you love his word? Do you read it for yourself personally? Do you spend time in prayer personally, privately, when no one's looking? Do you pursue after sin? Are you daily confessing, sorry, pursue after holiness, rather? Are you daily confessing your sin? Does your life show that you are pursuing after your future salvation? I wonder for the youth that are here in this room today and the, the young adults, what do you dream of pursuing in the future? There are good things to spend your lives on, but is part of that a future with Christ? Or, or older members in our congregation, what are you using your vocational retirement for? Are you pursuing now your future paradise in Christ? I fear too many people here in Palm Beach County are pursuing a false earthly paradise, and it is a poor substitute for the real thing. So now, four subpoint, four, four points to help us in this pursuit, in this pressing on. Number one, press on by looking ahead. Press on by looking ahead. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As I've already said, we look forward to the upward or heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus, our future salvation. And Christians, therefore, are future-oriented people. We are focused forward in this pursuit. We have a future in heaven. So, non-Christians that are just listening in on me right now, as, as I talk from the Bible to fellow Christians, if you're here today and you're not yet sure you believe this, let me just ask you to think about what are you looking forward to in the future? What are you, what are you hoping for where you will be a hundred years from today? Let me tell you that there is a future hope in Christ. And Paul compares this forward gaze of Christians to a race. To a race. So imagine him, with him, this, this scene of a race. Runners getting ready to take their marks. And the starting pistol goes off, and they race down the race course. They are pushing towards that, that, that final finish line. In the ancient games, a, a, a pole would be driven to the ground at, at the finish line, which all the runners would, would take after that pole, kind of like the, the modern-day ribbon that we might run across. And Paul says he lives like a runner fixing his sight on that goal, which will bring him the prize 
of his heavenly call. The runner is straining forward. He is looking ahead. He is working forward. And he's off and running, and he's not turning back. Perhaps you've run cross-country before, or you've tried to complete a half-marathon, or maybe you've just watched the Olympics on TV. Uh, perhaps, like me, you've taken up a new resolution to run, only to quit a few weeks later. Uh, but as every runner knows, even the worst of us, when you are exhausting yourself, you are focused on where you get to finish and where you get to stop. As you strain forward, you're gasping. You're, you're, you're panting for air. Sweat is, is dropping off your forehead, right? And you're, you're looking at your final goal, where you can stop. So Christian, let me ask you, do you focus on your upward call, your heavenly call? The Christian life is radically future-oriented. In fact, biblically, it's faith in God's future grace to us that motivates our current obedience. It's how we obey. There is a prize in Christ Jesus ahead. And so, like any good runner, Paul says he forgets what lies behind him. Did you see that in verse 13? No successful runner runs through the last 100 meters of the race critiquing which foot they first started on. They don't sit there going, I think I'm going to get the gold. I think I'm almost there. But I really wish I started my left foot, not my right foot. No one says that. No, there is a healthy forgetfulness about past sin and failure in the Christian life. Now, I'm not saying this means that we shouldn't deal with sin or that we shouldn't address sin, but for some of you here today, you need to press on after heaven and stop rehearsing past failures. In the Christian life, we confess our sin before God and others, we make things right, and then we move on. Forget what lies behind. Christian, you can forget past and confessed sin because if you're in Christ, he has forgotten your past sin. And you can also forgive others who have wronged you because you are running after a future in which God will make all things right. So just very practically here, pastoral note, when you're wronged, you will be tempted to think that if you move on, you're belittling that sin. You're belittling that offense. You'll be tempted to think that however much you were hurt is how much you need to dwell on that offense. This is true in your marriage. This is true in all of Christian life. You're tempted to sit and dwell. But the truth is, if you entrust being wronged to God and move on, you make a statement about how great God is and how glorious your future is. He is perfectly capable of dealing with every wrong against you. So press on by looking ahead. Number two, Paul says, press on by looking to faithful examples. Look at verses 15 through 17. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. 
Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So verse 15, Paul says that the way that he's thinking is the way that mature Christians also think. If they don't agree with what he's teaching, God will reveal that to their hearts. Only don't let the truth of what you believed go verse 17, he just finally gets to the point. He says, look, friends, I'm an example to you. Imitate me. Imitate what I'm doing. In fact, imitate us. The us here in in 17, I think, refers to him and Timothy. And then he seems to acknowledge there's a group of those that are, are believers that are running towards Christ. So imitate them. Now, I don't think Paul is being proud here. He doesn't seem to think he has it all together. After all, we just read how three times over he admitted that he hadn't yet arrived. He's not already perfect. But he does know that people need patterns to follow. Just like a runner watches someone else with a more experienced stride and learns from them, people need examples to follow of both obedience and repentance. You know, I remember one time taking a trip with a pastor friend of mine. He was, he was a mentor to me and an example to me. A very godly man. And a group of us were traveling with him, and it opened the door for just, just wonderful conversations together as we traveled and shared experiences. I remember we, we landed at our destination, and we went to rent a car, and the rental agency messed up our reservation. So we were stuck. On day one, our trip was already thrown off of schedule. And I watched as my pastor not only modeled good attributes, but he also struggled with impatience. He, I got to see what it was like for this godly man to keep his frustrations in check. And then I got to listen later as he acknowledged the need to grow in patience. And he asked us for prayer. His example, not only of faithfulness, but also of repentance, was just wonderful for me. And I could list other examples. I'm sure you've seen them. Times where friends have invited you into their lives, or, or parents have invited you over, and you've gotten to witness the messiness of parenting, right? We need to be like Paul. We need to not wait until we're perfect to be an example to others. Paul seems to keep coming back to this idea. Timothy and Epaphroditus, examples. Here again, himself an example. Next time we're in Philippians, again, we'll see an example of him calling them to follow after him. We need to see people who are faithful to Christ and follow after them. So do you look to faithful examples as you press on in the Christian life? And are you yourself a faithful example? Step number one in this process join a local church. If you haven't committed yourself to a specific church, whether this one or another one, you need to get serious about committing to the people of God so that you can live being an example among other believers. And then step number two, let others into your life. Invite others over. Get get a coffee with someone this week and, and talk about the coming sermon passage that we'll be in. Or or have a playground date with another mom and use it to talk about what God is teaching you. 
be an example and find examples. By the way, a, a helpful resource in this is this book, Discipling, how, helping others, how to Help Others Follow Jesus. This is just such a great practical resource. It's short, easy to read, and it will just shape the way that you think about your life of relationships and, com and community. I have four copies of this. I'll be out in that hallway after the service. The first four people that tell me that they'll actually read this book, it's yours for the taking. All right, moving on. One reason that we need good examples are, are, is that there's so many bad ones. So we get to point three, press on by looking away from earthly things. Look at verses 18 and 19. For many of you, of whom I have often, for, sorry, for many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So here again in this Paul letter, Paul again warns about bad examples. And these bad examples were ones who were looking to earthly things. We don't know exactly who these people are. Paul doesn't tell us. Perhaps they're the same people that he talked about at the beginning of the chapter who were putting their confidence in their flesh. This would certainly have made them enemies of the cross of Christ. Regardless, notice that Paul says he often warns about them. Are you surprised when people fall away from following Christ? You shouldn't be. The Bible is far more realistic about the allure of sin than we are. Paul says, you need to be reminded, I've often warned you, many others won't press on. But notice he does this in verse 18 with tears. When others aren't following Christ, this is not a reason for a viral YouTube video. It is not a reason for a spicy tweet or a witty joke. It is not a chance to have a rant with your friends to show how right you are. Paul is able to denounce bad examples and do it through tears. It breaks his heart. So how did these bad examples stop pursuing Christ? Verse 19 tells us that their end is not this heavenly call that the, we are chasing after, but their end is destruction. Their glory is not in Jesus Christ, but in their shameful acts. And their minds are set on earthly things, not on the heavenly prize they are running after. Earthly things. This is like a runner who's, who's more excited about the dirt that he's running on than the goal at the finish line. Yes, you've got to run on the dirt. But how foolish to get excited about that. There's gold at the finish line if you press on. The point is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice one way that this seems to happen. Did you notice the phrase, their God is their belly? The idea is that they worship the appetites that they have. But the text literally says belly. 
It's a picture of the absurdity. It's almost like he's giving us a visual image of people bowing down and worshiping stomachs. It's, it's foolish. Friends, let me just say this. There's, there's a healthy way to enjoy our appetites. Last Sunday after the service, our family went to Texas Roadhouse with Gary and Brenda Korn, and we enjoyed a blooming onion appetizer. Let me tell you, we enjoyed every single bite to the glory of God. <laughs> Amen, Gary? We were not wrong to enjoy good food. God did not accidentally create our taste buds. Whoops, what happened there? It's enjoying that too much. No, he has given us good gifts to enjoy and to spur us on to thankfulness. But, listen to me now, when your love for the gift outweighs your love for the giver, you belittle God and you worship your appetite. This is a sober warning to us in our culture today. What will keep you from pursuing Christ until the end, from reaching that finish line? According to this passage, it's not that you weren't smart enough. It's not that you just didn't understand the complex parts of your theology. According to this passage, most likely, your misplaced hunger for the things of this world will sideline you on your road to finishing well. So what cravings and appetites are you tempted to serve? Is it an appetite for a restaurant that you can't stop thinking about? Or an appetite for a, a sexual fantasy or a secret sin that you keep feeding? Is it an appetite for a late night snack or a hard drink that you use to escape? What earthly desires dull your hunger for God? Friends, don't let your God be your earthly appetites. Confess to a friend any misplaced desires. Confess this week. Just sit down and say, I think I've been loving this aspect of this world too much, and it's been distracting me from Christ. And then consider maybe even fasting for a season from them. And then press on as you look away from earthly things. Colossians 3, 2 says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this world. Which leads us to our fourth and final point. How is it possible to control your appetites? How can you be an example to others? How can you look ahead in the Christian life? Point number four, Paul says, press on by looking to Christ. Press on by looking to Jesus Christ. Worship with me. Would you just worship with me as I read verses 20 and 21? Look at how glorious they are. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm this way in the Lord, my beloved. 
Friends, Christians belong to a different country. Jamie and I spent 11 and a half years living in another country, Egypt. Anytime I needed an ID, I would show my passport, entering the, the airport, renting an apartment, paying for utilities. I would show my blue passport, and I'd be reminded that I was from a different country. I had a different citizenship. Sure, I might have been living in Egypt, and I was spending all of my time there, but I was working and doing, and doing much of my life there, but I was, I was never a citizen of Egypt. My belonging was ultimately to a different country. In a far greater way, Paul reminds us that if we are in Christ, our identity is in heaven, and we are not citizens of this world. And as such, we are waiting for our king. We're waiting for our true leader, our true King Jesus, the one who subjects all things to himself. Christians wait for him because Christians believe that Jesus is coming back. If you're a non-Christian here today, the Bible teaches that one day Jesus Christ will return. See, we believe that the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, was God. And that he came to earth because all humankind had rebelled against God. He came and he lived in perfection without any sin. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. He bore our sin on the cross. And then he rose from the grave conquering sin and death. And not only rose the grave, but he ascended bodily into heaven where he sits. He has taken a seat at the right hand of God. Anyone who trusts in Christ by faith and repentance can have forgiveness of their sins, but you must respond. Because as this passage says, one day Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes, he will come in power. He will come as king. I invite you today, if you're here, turn to Jesus Christ today. Talk to me or talk to someone else here today about what I'm explaining right now. These, these are matters of life and death. You, you can't afford to wait to think about the fact that Jesus will he will come back. Christians, our king that has this power to subject the world to himself uses his power for us. This is glorious as we close. Notice what he says. He says, one day he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. By the way, what a precious passage for our church in the last couple of months. Just over the last several weeks, we've, we've grieved together as three dear members have gone to be with the Lord. Think of Jerry Medley and of Cheryl Scrivens and Bob Shaw. But do you see this, this hope that awaits us as our physical bodies die? Do you see the prize here at the end of the finish line? Christ has a glorious body. The physical body that we read about him taking in chapter 2 when he took on the form of a man. 
He still has that right now. But right now, it's a resurrected, glorious, and eternal body. And just like he has this body, he says he will transform our bodies to be like his. This is glorious. Not only do we get to be with him, we get to be like him. We await the Savior. What a glorious finish line to run after. So therefore, my brothers and sisters, First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach, stand firm thus. Stand firm in this way. That is, stand firm by pursuing after your final salvation. Dane Ortland writes this. He says, The gospel was first cherished, then assumed, then lost in many cultures. Left in neutral, all of us tend to slide away from the wonder of the gospel. Church, don't drift into neutral this week. Run after Christ. Press on by looking to Christ this week. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the glorious work of bringing Christ Jesus to your right hand in a glorified, glorious body. And we thank you that you have promised us who are in Christ that we will one day have a glorious, resurrected body like his. Father, may, may we fix our eyes on that goal as we run after Christ this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of Jesus Christ.